From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I think the religious left has assumed that power is simply cultural power. Power is the ability to actually shape worlds. It's actually to define who has access to what voting booths, to change how districts are drawn. So there's been really an unwillingness from the religious left to actually engage the real sort of mechanisms, in my opinion, of power in the United States. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is L. Benjamin Rolski. He's an adjunct professor in the History and Anthropology Department at Monmouth University, and he's a part-time lecturer in the Religion Department at Rutgers University. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond. Benjamin Rolski, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you very much for having me. Really, really looking forward to this. Well, I, I enjoyed the book, and I have had other commentators on the program who have talked about this concept of the religious left, and it's particularly timely given the fact that we're recording this right in the midst of the Republican National Convention, and as we're gearing up towards a deeply contested presidential election and a set of elections down ticket from there. And so there's a lot that I want to get into with this book, but I'd like to start at a particular moment that you talk about midway through your book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left. You you talk to us about a man by the name of Norman Lear, and he's working on a screenplay. And the name of that screenplay is Religion. And in the process of researching this screenplay, he's going back into the into the sort of videotape archives and he's watching various preachers. And he comes across a moment with a televangelist by the name of Jimmy Swaggart. And he watches with his mouth dropping as Jimmy Swaggart is basically asking his congregation to pray for the removal of a Supreme Court justice. And to me, that moment was very important because it says, I think, a lot about the moment that Norman Lear was in. In your book, you talk about that moment being a place where Norman Lear begins to make some different decisions about how he's going to proceed. He abandons the script and he goes in a different direction. So let's really dig in right there. First of all, in a couple of sentences, for someone who may be unfamiliar with the name Norman Lear and why it was so important, particularly in the 1970s, give us an overview of who Norman Lear was. Sure. Norman Lear, uh, one of the most well-known television producers and writers of the 1970s. He's known most famously, perhaps for something like All in the Family, but he also helped produce things like Sanford and Son, The Jeffersons, Maud, and was really one of the premier showrunners of the 1970s. Well, and so when we talk about a show like All in the Family or Maud or Sanford and Sons, what's going on in those television shows is kind of a, a it's a sitcom. And so 
I think most listeners are going to know what that is. But really, this was the, the beginning age of the sitcom, wasn't it? And so why don't you walk us through a little bit about what All in the Family was in terms of if a person was just turning it on for the first time. And I'm, I'm assuming that some listeners are going to be unfamiliar completely with this name, All in the Family. So if they're just turning it on for the first time, what are they seeing when they're sitting down for a half an hour and watching All in the Family? Well, the iconic character from All the Family is Archie Bunker. Um, he was really television's first bigot that was on primetime programming. And what was so novel about Lear's programming at the time was that he inaugurated something called relevance programming. Um, so if you're watching his show, you're also watching arguably the headlines of the news. He had his writers look at newspapers, magazines, and literally write the events as they were happening into the shows themselves. So I believe in the first episode of first season, there's, a t- there's an episode called Gloria Discovers Women's Lib, which is a wonderful discussion, sort of argument at very high volume between Edith and her daughter and about, you know, Edith, you're a slave to Archie and Archie's ruling over you. So he really inaugurated this whole idea of television being applicable and socially relevant to the times that it was broadcast in. And so if we look at that moment, when we have a character who is saying, you're a slave to your husband and all of that, and it's coming right from the headlines, is it safe to say that Norman Lear was writing from a particular political point of view, or was he trying to write objectively? Like, what, what was his approach to this kind of topical material? Right. So my argument is, is that, at least for Lear, he looked at what was called the wasteland of network program, and he thought, you know, leave it to Beaver, the Rifleman, these sorts of shows were really not doing doing anything for him. They lacked a sort of political edge. So I sort of argue in the book is that All in the Family is a representation of his civic vision in a way, even though obviously Archie is a bigot and we're not condoning it. It's also satirical. And that's arguably one of the most difficult and fascinating aspects of the show is the role of satire in American public life and the role of satire in progressive organizing. Things like the Colbert Report, John Stewart's Daily Show, there's a rich tradition of satire on the, in the name of progressive programming. And that's what Lear was after, was that he wanted you to laugh and cry, but he also wanted to have you think about what, what you were laughing and crying about. Well, and so a good example of this would be the actor that played Archie Bunker himself, Carol O'Connor. If I understand correctly, the biography of Carol O'Connor, he could not have been more different in real life from the character of Archie Bunker. What were some of those contrasts like? You're absolutely right. Carol O'Connor, he actually had, there were a number of instances at table reads where Carol O'Connor was viscerally against what he had to do, what he had to say. Um, Carol was a professional. He came from the stage, which is also a wonderful aspect of the show. You can watch it on mute and the wonderful expressions of the faces they're just to die for. Um, But on the day-to-day basis, Carol O'Connor had to deal with people on the street, you know, oftentimes yelling out to him, go Arch, you know, go Archie. And that began to sort of get to Carol O'Connor every once in a while. But ultimately, like Lear, I think O'Connor was quoted in Ebony or some other magazine I quote at the time that Archie was ultimately destined for the dustbin of history. The satire was to say that we're laughing sort of at him, we're not laughing with him. But I think in many ways, the double-edged sword there is everything to do with our politics today. This is fascinating, and and we'll get into this more in just a moment, but for listeners that have just joined us, I want to just remind them that they're listening to Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is L. Benjamin Rolski, and we're discussing his recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond. 
Okay, so we've been talking about this show, All in the Family, that was created by this man, Norman Lear. And we've been talking about the central character of All in the Family, Archie Bunker, who you describe as kind of being a satire of a bigot. Uh, He's designed to make the audience sort of look at themselves in the mirror if they hold any of those views and understand, as you just said, that it's destined for the dustbin of history, that this is not a good way to live one's life either interpersonally or politically. But I think, if I'm reading your book correctly, and you've begun to talk about this, not everybody watched the show that way. People watched the show and they didn't quite get the joke. So what was the the kind of other side of the coin with regard to as Lear was creating these characters and as Carol O'Connor was embodying this character, what were some of the viewers getting out of this experience? Well, the other side of the story is a number of actual studies were conducted to try and quantify the actual impact of the show and its impact on racism in America. At least two or three uh, studies were done, a number of New York Times op-eds. I think Lear's even authoring or offering sort of defenses of his programming. But then at the same time, what I get into is the material culture of those who are actually identifying with Archie, who see themselves, as Richard Nixon talked about in the late 60s, and as we hear a president talking about today, as the silent majority. Um, Archie is Irish. He's a working class person. He's, his paycheck is dwindling. He thinks he's losing his job to people of color. So you actually have people making bumper stickers, making posters, making shirts that basically say Archie for president, Archie for president. I wrote a CNN op-ed about this as well as the return of Archie Bunker and all the memes you see on the internet equating Archie and Trump. So the other side of it is satire doesn't really work if you don't really realize what's going on. And you can actually agree with everything that you're actually seeing. And it can be, in a lot of ways, community-sustaining. Uh, well, you mentioned a moment ago a more contemporary version of satire, the Stephen Colbert character as opposed to Stephen Colbert, the actor and host. And we saw this, in fact, in the correspondence dinner where Stephen Colbert was invited to come and speak by people who apparently, again, didn't get the joke. They thought that he really was. Maybe I'm misunderstanding what happened there, but my take on it was some people who had been watching Colbert had thought that he really was the kind of conservative pundit that he was lampooning. And so he was invited to speak at this correspondence dinner, and it kind of blew up in the faces of those who invited him. But first of all, am I reading Colbert correctly, or would you say that in a different way? No, I think that's right. I mean, I'd have to, you know, watch the video again. But I mean, I think what you say is exactly right. And I did an interview with Albert Moeller recently, and he basically said something similar, like we just, you know, not like we don't have senses of humor, but at the same time, it's just different. And that's something I've come back to, you know, why aren't there equivalents on on the quote unquote other side of the use of satire and 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 really comedy and sort of late night comedy. And in many ways that speaks to a little bit of the fall is that if you can watch a late night show and kind of pat yourself on the back for agreeing with all these sort of political statements made in a cultural setting, then you've done your kind of political work for the day. So I would totally agree with that reading. And it's just as fascinating the work and the leverage that satire has, but ironically it really has to be understood as such. Well, you just said something, and I want to dig into it, because you also said it in your book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left. You're basically making the claim that on the right and on the left, the humor is different. And you mentioned this this conversation with Albert Moeller, that there's a different form of humor there. What's the difference? Help to flesh that out for me. When we're looking at a person on the left being funny and people on the left laughing in that, and a person on the right being funny, what's the difference in the humor there? 
That's a really good question. And it's actually one that I'm still trying to tease out. I think just to be specific, you know, I think satire is something that progressive activism and sort of progressive thinkers and progressive actors use very much uh, to their to their benefit. I think something like South Park is probably the most brilliant example of all of that. Uh, Norman Lear has an intimate connection to South Park. He voiced Benjamin Franklin for their 100th episode. And I think they, there's a wonderful episode where I'm a little bit country, I'm a little bit rock and roll, and the two parties sort of get together and they go at it. So I think it's ultimately educational. It's, it's ultimately what I call, it's pedagogical, it's, it's instructive, but it's also made in the spirit of educating. And I think, you know, to answer your question, I don't really have a great one because I, necessar- I haven't necessarily figured out why that is. Um, I just think that satire in some way is used uh, as a progressive weapon or leverage to make a political argument in public. But ironically, it oftentimes doesn't land because the other side doesn't realize what's actually going on. So I actually am still thinking that through. Well, you said something a moment ago. You said that this is educational. It's pedagogical. And when we began talking about Norman Lear as the kind of creator, showrunner of these various iconic shows, we began to explore the idea that he had an agenda, that he had a politics and a a sort of vision of civil society that he was trying to communicate through these shows. But if he were to be asked at the time that he was running these shows, you say his answer would have been simply with a shrug, I'm an entertainer. So talk to me a little bit about that initial disconnect. Why did Lear hide behind the idea or the the feint that he was simply just entertaining people? Why didn't he lay all these cards on the table and say, no, I really have a desire to educate people about how I think the good in society should look? That's a great question. And the word I was searching for earlier is didactic. Um, And I think I use that in the text that his programming is didactic, is that it's programming in the spirit of making you think about something. And just to be pragmatic about it, I don't think Lear could uh, would really be honest or really could afford to be honest. Uh, I think over time, his his thought changed. Later in his life, he laid out his cards, especially once he formed something like People for the American Way. But to get something like I Love Liberty, his variety show off the ground in the early 80s, he basically had to say it was bipartisan, it was nonpartisan, you had to deal with the fairness doctrine at the time. So in many ways, it was sort of a wink, wink, nod, nod kind of a thing. And op-eds at the time certainly pointed it out that Lear was walking a very, very, very thin line, and people noticed that. But in many ways, it was an optic, or it was for the optic. It was an attempt to come off in a certain way, but really, at the same time, get a message in also simultaneously. Because people like Jerry Falwell and other conservatives reached out to Lear to be part of this variety show. And he said, no, I'm not going to allow speeches. I'm not going to allow lectures. But all the while, that's what he's doing. So he's a brilliant tactician and sort of rhetoric or a person of rhetoric in making that argument in public. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is L. Benjamin Rolski. He's an adjunct instructor in the History and Anthropology Department at Monmouth University, and he's a part-time lecturer in the Religion Department at Rutgers University. We're talking about his recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. 
Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you like what you're hearing today, please do check out our website at thingsnotseenradio.com. Our guest today is L. Benjamin Rolski. He's an adjunct professor in the History and Anthropology Department at Monmouth University, and he's a part-time lecturer in the Religion Department at Rutgers University. We're talking about his recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond. Well, a moment ago, we were talking about Norman Lear and his show, All in the Family, and we were building towards an examination of this moment when Lear is writing a film script and decides to abandon the film script and go in a different direction, a more explicitly political direction. And you've begun to talk a little bit about that, but let's really dig into that, because he, in this moment when he watches Jimmy Swaggart basically calling for his congregation to pray for the removal of a Supreme Court justice. First of all, why would Swaggart praying for that and asking his congregation to pray for that, why, why should that bother anybody? Right, that's a brilliant, you know, great question. So it just goes back to Lear's upbringing. He uh, was a child of the Crystal Radio. He listened to the fireside chats of FDR, and he's also listening to the anti-Semitic diatribes of Father Charles Coughlin. He fought in World War II. He flew multiple bombing missions over Italy and Western Europe. So for him, that was a fundamental violation of the First Amendment in his mind, which is ultimately what leads to people for the American way. So he's going to write a movie. He's consulting Robin Williams and Richard Pryor. He sees this moment. The electronic church comes to its most terrifying, culminating moment in these words. Lear transitions, and he thinks about making PSAs, public service announcements, which get broadcast locally and then nationally. They're very, very entertaining, including the likes of Goldie Hawn and Muhammad Ali, you know, putting questions forth like, how do you like your eggs? I like them scrambled. I like them over easy. The freedom to choose. That is the American way. And from there on out, that's where Lear gets the motivation and really the support from interfaith communities to build something like People for the American Way. So tell us briefly about People for the American Way. So is it a, a, a corporation? Is it a nonprofit? Is it like, what is the structure of it? And what did he think that it was going to be doing in the world? Right. So in many ways, it's still obviously very, very, very active. It's a nonprofit organization. Uh, for him, in many ways, it's a reactive response to something like the moral majority. You know, we, what we, if we want to ask what the religious left is, is it a vanguard? Is it a rear guard? Is it proactive? Is it reactive? I would say it's mostly reactive, and it's unfortunately a little exclusionary because over against the moral majority, we have Norman Lear's People for the American Way, which also spawns things like Right Watch, which is what Lear obviously or arguably gets going. If you go to the archives at the Bancroft at Berkeley, there are any number of documents from conservative uh, organizations and nonprofits, and and he's, he's keeping track. So in this sense, People for the American Way is fighting on behalf of the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion. They're still very, very active today. And I would say they're also an interfaith organization. Uh, he's working with Martin Marty. He's working with Notre Dame President Theodore Hesburgh. He's working with professors at Yale Divinity School. And it's really an attempt to create sort of a political action committee nonprofit organization that would rival or that would match in the public square the moral majority. 
You mentioned Martin Marty just a moment ago, and we've interviewed uh, Dr. Marty here on the program, but just in case listeners haven't heard that interview or are unfamiliar with the name, give us a brief overview of who Martin Marty is and how he contributes to, to this bigger picture of what Lear was doing. Absolutely. So Martin Marty is a professor at the University of Chicago. During my exams for my PhD, I had to read someone like Martin Marty. He's one of the most well-known historians of American public life and American religion. And he happens to get to know someone like Norman Lear, and he becomes very close with Norman Lear. I just spoke with Norman the other day, and he told me that he's still in touch with Martin Marty, and they still talk over the phone. The first chapter of the book, I think, talks about the pilgrimages that Lear would go on to the estate of Robert Frost, which Lear buys in the early 80s. And people like Martin Marty and sort of intellectual luminaries at the time would go up for seminars on what is religion, what is belief. And Marty actually had some say in the writing of some of the sketches in the variety show that people for the American Way put on titled I Love Liberty, featuring Christopher Reeve as this New England minister. He has to talk to Walter Matthaus, this unbelievable moment. But Marty is a professor who lends his intellectual credibility to Lear on behalf of this burgeoning organization. So this is so helpful in terms of trying to set the stage for the listeners about what's happening here. So let me see if I have it clearly and correct me where I'm wrong. So Norman Lear becomes one of the most, if not the most successful television producers of the 1970s. His shows are being watched by tens of millions of people every week. He builds up a lot of credibility and a lot of power and his whole purpose, if I'm understanding it, in trying to shepherd this power towards a greater good is he wants to he wants to shift a conversation towards a more inclusive civil society, one where what he takes to be the kind of extremists and bigots like Oral Roberts or the Moral Majority, what he sees to be outliers of the American tradition, he wants to move them away from the center of the conversation, either through ridicule or through some other means. But then he figures out that what he's been doing hasn't quite been working, that making the sitcom isn't getting what he needs in terms of this civic conversation. And so he shifts and begins, he abandons Hollywood and he goes instead to start this organization called People for the American Way. First of all, do I have that basic movement correct, or is there something that I've missed in that process? No, I would say so. And just for the sake of scale, you know, not only is it tens of millions, it's really hundreds of millions of people, because you only have three networks at the time. And his shows dominated the entire decade of the 1970s. And so he took no greater pride in knowing that people were having water cooler talk about the content of his shows the next day. So they were really making a wide, wide impact across the country. And I would say that he still relies on Hollywood because he's using the famous actors and celebrities for jokes or the PSAs. But then by the time we get to Isle of Liberty, it's one of the most star-studded events that you know I've certainly ever seen. I and mean, it's couched as bipartisan, has people like Barry Goldwater in it, but also has Gregory Hines and Robin Williams and Mary Tyler Moore. Um, So it's a wonderful microcosm or metaphor for how a certain type of liberal progressivism or liberal sensibility draws on the ideas, the people of Hollywood to make a broader, grander case about how society should look and operate. Now, we've talked about this a couple times, and you've begun to sort of sketch out for us what this I Love Liberty was. But for someone who I think has been raised in a YouTube generation away from network television, if you could just take a moment or two and flesh out for us, what was I Love Liberty? Like, was it a series? Was it a live event? Like, what what were the kind of structural parameters of it? And, and how did it kind of land? And how was it received? 
Yeah, so I Love Liberty is a great question. I Love Liberty was, and it's especially in the era of sort of YouTube, it was a variety show. So people today can think of it as something like SNL in many ways. You have sketches, you have music, you have performances. And again, it's somewhat reactive in the sense that Norman Lear is paying attention to the rallies that Jerry Falwell is having, which is I Love America rallies. And so just like People for the American Way was created in the sort of mirror of moral majority, I Love Liberty is created in the mirror of I Love America. Um, and think of it as a variety show. You have dance numbers. You have Robin Williams doing a routine about the flag, which I think is one of the most provocative but funny things I've really ever seen. It was a one-night extravaganza. It was shot in a big arena. It had Big Bird involved. Martin Sheen are having discussion about the history and origins of the country. The Muppets do an amazing reenactment of the Continental Congress. They're making jokes. But at the same time, the sketch ends with a song about speaking about the brotherhood of men, which is a phrase that goes back to much of the interfaith organizing of the early 20th century. So it was a one-night extravaganza, but it was also critiqued as, you know, is this bipartisan? Is this really, uh, did ABC really give tens of millions of dollars for the production of it, which it did? Falwell reached out to be part of it. Lear said, no, we don't want any lectures. So it, again, it's a wonderful way of sort of bookending the bookending the book, I suppose, pun intended, perhaps. And uh, it also speaks to the use of comedy in liberal progressive organizing. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with L. Benjamin Rolski about his recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond. Well, what fascinates me about this shift that we've been talking about that Norman Lear takes, he is at the crest of his fame and his power. He could literally do anything. He could use his money and he could use his prestige to basically shift the entertainment industry in a number of directions. And we can think of contemporary examples of very famous entertainers who choose to withdraw or to live a, a life of hedonism or to simply cater to the, the basest impulses. It seems to me, if I'm reading your book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, correctly, that was not what Lear did. Lear was trying to reach for something almost kind of civically idealistic. He was trying to reach for something better. How in the world, why in the world, what motivates the man to do this? You say that you've talked to him, you've interviewed him, you have a, a conversation with him occasionally. What is ticking in Norman Lear to make him say, I have all this power, I want to use it for civic good? Yeah, wonderful question. So, you know, the audience is familiar with the phrase, something like civil religion, the work of Robert Bellin in the late 70s or the late 60s, I should say, limitations being what they are. Uh, that's really what he was after. And growing up listening to what he did on the radio, growing up listening to the blacklists happening, growing up dealing or not growing up, but dealing within the industry of the family viewing hour, he has a deep and passionate commitment to the First Amendment. Now, does that get him in trouble a little bit in the sense that those he don't think are really appropriate for public life are appropriate for public speech, perhaps those on the more conservative side of things? We can certainly critique him for that, and I certainly did that. But even now, I'm 98 years old. He sent out, I think, a bunch of emails, either people for the American Way did on behalf of the post office, you know, creating awareness of what's happening and how people can get organized and how people can help out. Um, I know Netflix just remade One Day at a Time, which is another one of his shows from the 70s. I know that obviously ABC did live reenactments of All in the Family and the Jeffersons, I'm pretty sure. So for whatever reason, generation, generationally speaking, people might be unfamiliar, but he is still 
in the public consciousness of this country. And you go to the Smithsonian, his chair is the second most sought after item behind Dorothy's ruby red slippers. So that's always fascinated me too, but he's driven by his understanding of what it means to protect the First Amendment. He's done it through programming, prime time, and he's done it, done it through interfaith activism with people for the American way. A moment ago, and you've mentioned this a couple of times throughout our conversation, you mentioned the family viewing hour. And this this is something that I think, again, folks that are more familiar with the kind of Wild West of media now and the kind of YouTube generation and where the Internet can basically bring us any kind of viewing entertainment that we wish. What was the family viewing hour? Family viewing hour is an interesting moment when CBS and other networks in allegiance or in communication with the FCC basically decided to try and alter or control what type of content uh, was coming on the air after a certain time. This is when TV itself becomes a mobilization tool. It's becoming part of what people today call the burgeoning or the culture wars. TV itself was becoming this kind of battle for the holy war between Falwell and Lear, who were really being reported on simultaneously. So it was an attempt by the FCC and the broadcast networks to limit what they thought was somewhat risque programming. People are noticing now you have organizations that are getting organized to talk about issues of representation, racial, sexual, or otherwise. And so TV was coming a battleground very quickly in the 70s for these sorts of issues. And Lear saw this as a fundamental violation. He and Larry Gelbart of MASH and Grant Tinker of Mary Tyler Moore sued uh, the FCC and the, and the um, networks, and they ended up winning. So again, it sort of goes back to Lear's commitment to what he understands the First Amendment to be all about. We've touched on this, but I just want to ask the question explicitly. So someone like Norman Lear, if we were to say to Norman Lear, television is political, do you think Norman Lear would agree with that statement or would Norman Lear kind of dissemble and try and try and say, no, 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 it's not really political. It's just entertainment. Like where would Lear land on a question like that? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think I tried to track that a little bit. I think at first he would just say, I'm an entertainer, I'm an entertainer. But I think deep down, he's always seen it as a political sort of space. And whether he would admit it or not, when he would say things like The Rifleman or Mr. Ed or Bewitched or something like that was utterly kind of empty. I think implicitly what he's saying is there's a certain, there's a certain politics to that lack of politics for him. So would he himself sort of admit it on his own behalf or in, in the spirit of his own programming? That would be difficult to ultimately say. I think now he was sort of open with that, but it's a really great question because it cuts at the heart of what he's trying to do, which is to walk a very fine line between entertainment and kind of political activism, political sort of progressive imagination. So I think it really kind of depends on what day you catch him on. (laughs) One of the things that you're getting at in your book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, is that looking at a character, a person like Norman Lear, gives us a snapshot of a much wider picture. And so if we were to expand on that political vision that Lear, even if he's not admitting it, is kind of pushing towards, flesh that out for us. What does the political civic landscape that Lear would like to see, what does that look like? What are the the main characteristics of it? Something along the lines of this idea of what sort of civil religion is that it's pluralistic, people respect uh, respect one another, nothing is said too extreme in a sense, no one is voicing themselves in a disrespectful way, because he's really responding to not only what he grew up with, but also what he's trying to negotiate and really combat in the 1970s, and something that he recalls, uh, I believe, a president of the Southern Baptist Convention in the mid to late 70s says very, very publicly, you know, God does not hear the prayer of a Jew. So in many ways, he's 
after a somewhat, not necessarily controlling, but he's after an imagination of what the public square is supposed to look like and how people are supposed to treat themselves. So someone like Archie Bunker isn't really meant for something like that. Jerry Falwell isn't really meant for something like that. But at the same time, like we sort of talked about, he has some, there's some limitations to that. You know, how pluralistic really was he and how really was he or how willing was he really to include all sorts of Americans? And he certainly talks that way. People of the American way does. But at the same time, I think people have been critical of that kind of pluralistic vision. Well, and so there's a quotation from your book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, that I'm going to lift out. And I can't recall who made the quotation, but if I'm hearing you correctly, it gets at what you were just saying. And the quotation basically says that the civil religion that we're talking about, it won't get you into heaven, but it will make you a good citizen of the United States. Now, when I lift out that quotation, is that in the ballpark of what you've just been saying about Lear's kind of vision for the kind of politics that he's trying to enact, or, or have I misapplied that quotation? No, I think that's fair. And, you know, someone like Bella, the sociologist from back in the 60s, so civil religion isn't necessarily about a Christian salvation, a, a notion of Christian salvation. It's existing alongside Christianity, Judaism, but it borrows a lot of covenantal language. It borrows a lot of sort of prophetic language. And so, yeah, Lear is after a certain type of behavior, a certain type of normative practice in public that he saw conservatism sort of in general violating in many ways. And whether that was Falwell or Swagger, who asks for the removal of Supreme Court justice, that for him is, in, is a fundamental violation of how people are supposed to behave. And oftentimes it's under the phrase of civil religion. And he uses something like on the family as a sort of cautionary tale, I think, in many ways to show where this could possibly go. But in many ways, that's what he's doing is defending this sort of vision of what the public square looks like. And Liberal progressives have a very close sort of custodial relationship to the public, public goods, public services that conservative operatives, individuals over time have tried to dismantle really ever since someone like Reagan. Um, so Lear's doing his best to combat and confront that ascendant kind of conservative mentality, which is, said, which is to say government is not necessarily the answer. What really fascinates me in what you just said is that someone like Lear is looking at entertainment in the public square and the public square itself, and the, the purpose of the public square and robust citizenship is not the salvation of souls. It's good civic engagement and going along to get along. But then we look at someone like Falwell or Swaggart, and they would, if you were to ask them the same question, if I'm understanding correctly, they would have a completely different answer. No, the public square, entertainment, all of the aspects of our culture should be turned towards explicitly the salvation of souls. Now, am I overplaying the hand when I draw that distinction and, and make that the characteristic of someone like Swaggart or Falwell? Or is that an accurate description of what you think they would actually say the public square is for? No, I, don't, I think that's fairly, I see no sort of problem with that. I mean, in the sense that I think one of the most sort of brilliant pieces of conservative argumentation beginning at that time is really what you do in private affects what everyone does in public. And so there's such a commitment or what I call borrowing from a scholar colleague of mine, a sort of custodial character to what we mean by this public square. And so for obviously, say for Falwell, it's a little bit more important or he makes it more important what you're doing in private, which has something to do with the nation. But yes, I would totally agree that Lear is after a certain type of citizenship, a certain type of behavior, a certain type of normativity, perhaps, that's liberal, that's progressive, that tends to, say, echo the writings of Richard Hofstetter, the historian, and call those on the other side, you know, paranoid, extremist blowhards uh, in many ways. And so Lear's trying to enact this. He's trying to literally make this happen through all the channels that he has access to. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and we are having a fascinating conversation with L. Benjamin Rolski. He's an adjunct professor in the History and Anthropology Department at Monmouth University, and he's a part-time lecturer in the Religion Department at Rutgers University. We're talking about his recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and popular culture in the 1970s and beyond, we've been digging into the influence of probably one of the most important television producers in the history of the medium, Norman Lear, and the ways in which Lear's sort of political approach to both the medium of television and the civic space, the public square, shifted over time. So if you're enjoying this conversation, please stay with us because we'll be back after the break in just a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is L. Benjamin Rolski. He is an adjunct professor in the History and Anthropology Department at Monmouth University, and he's a part-time lecturer in the Religion Department at Rutgers University. We're discussing his recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond. We've talked briefly about the competing political visions of someone like Norman Lear, the television producer, and televangelists like Jerry Falwell and Jimmy Swaggart. And one wants to use entertainment and the public square to make better citizens. The others, Falwell, Swaggart, and others like that, want to use the public square and entertainment and all aspects of culture towards the salvation of souls. All right. And this, I think, gets at one of the fundamental problems when we analyze someone like Lear, because Lear is talking about an inclusive public sphere, a sphere where people tolerate each other's views. But if I'm reading your book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, correctly, one of the things that Lear couldn't tolerate was the vision that was being put forth by people like Falwell and Swaggart and others. And so, first of all, if I characterize it that way, is that correct? And if that is a correct reading of what Lear's limitation is, what's the problem with the fact that this person who's calling for liberal tolerance can't tolerate certain things within liberal society? Right. No, and that's a great, it's a sort of philosophical quandary. It's, um, I guess, a conundrum as well. I guess I saw that as a sort of moment or evidence of, of inconsistency. If the public square is, in fact, this inclusive place, this pluralistic place, and especially in light of the academic sort of history and writing on conservative subjects they tend, tend to be regressive. They tend to be sort of emerging from the woodwork, you know, say going back to Scopes and then the writings of H.L. Mencken. I think Lear is in some ways allowed, you know, as you're suggesting, to have that kind of lack of tolerance for the intolerant. But I think at the same time, it sort of contributes to a bit of a truncated vision of what the public square could actually be. 
you know, I remember someone like someone like William Buckley having Jerry Falwell on his show on the firing line. And Buckley would go at Falwell and accuse him for all these different things and actually would engage Falwell. But Lear doesn't even let that happen uh, because he's in control of the airwaves in, in, in many ways, uh, even though the Fairness Doctrine gets deregulated by Reagan. Lear's not even willing to have that conversation with someone like Falwell. He shuts it off before it even gets started. So we can certainly do that, but at the same time, it begins to show a little, in my mind, a lack of consistency or a little bit of sort of a hypocritical sense of what pluralism is all about, what the public square is all about, without even relying on, you know, engagement. Uh, and the history of that is, is that public access or public programming itself was more of a access to liberal progressive denominations of people anyway, and conservatives have had to pay for the airtime for most of the 20th century. And that speaks to just a systemic sort of structure that was bent in Lear's direction in many ways. Okay, so now we're in the 21st century. And when we look at the sort of lay of the land from the Reagan era to now, I think if I'm reading it right, I see a shift. Let me line out what I see that shift as being, and you let me know where I've got it right and I've got it wrong. Because what I have seen is that the folks on the right, both the conservative right and the religious right, so both sort of explicitly and not explicitly religious in their conservatism, they have taken pages from Lear's playbook. They have learned that if you want to have the kind of cultural influence that they seek, first of all, you learn to dominate the, the mechanisms of content creation. So you influence things like Hollywood and you influence things like television. You have programs created that are specifically designed to entertain but also politically shift listeners and viewers. And I'm thinking of things like the Rush Limbaugh program or the Glenn Beck program or, or Fox News. And so you, you dominate that kind of that channel of communication. And at the same time, you begin to create nonprofits, organizations that can help to influence the culture politically in, in in sort of more direct lobbying means. And so if I'm reading this right, Lear pioneered something and then kind of laid down the torch. No one else picked up the torch on the left, but the right certainly picked up the torch and has been running with it. Now, when I characterize it in that way, what have I got right and what have I got wrong? No, I think that's very, very well said. In many ways, the sort of the left, whatever we say that is, progressives, liberals, are very much a vanguard in the sense of leveraging culture on behalf of political vision. I think, if anything, what Lear does is he writes reality, or as he, as he understands it, into TV. And what we can say what that is, is the quote-unquote social issue, which really comes to the fore in the 70s and has really been all of political life up till today. Sexuality, race, First Amendment, Second Amendment, the quote-unquote hot-button issue. So I would take it back even farther. Your narrative was wonderful in the sense that the civil rights movement in itself, leveraging Christianity on behalf of a very particular cause, a very particular case. We go from Martin Luther King to being the image of public religiosity in the 1960s to Jerry Falwell being the face of public religiosity in America in the 1970s. So I think that's brilliantly said and combined with conservative adaptation of direct mail, learning from the failures of Barry Goldwater's failed presidential campaign in 1964, leveraging that on behalf of remaking a country through the mailbox, getting people going by sending them very obscene pictures to get them to go against Roe v. Wade, to have them go against people of different faiths, different colors, different sexualities. I think you're spot on in the sense that they're appropriating things that Lear is doing, and especially the social and cultural issue to make political hay in the there and in the now. 
Well, and so it's there in the title of your book, and it's in this narrative that I've just lined out. The torch is laid down, and the right picks it up, and the left doesn't pick it up. This notion of the fall of the religious left. And so part of your thesis is that the religious left has lost the kind of cultural control that it once had. And it is it ceded the, the public space to those that would be, I guess, more hardline, more bigoted in terms of the way that they want culture and society and the public sphere to line itself out. That's in contrast to some other commentators on the religious left. I'm thinking in particular of a conversation I had recently with Jack Jenkins, and he he seems to want to argue for a thesis of the the reascendancy of the religious left and the sort of the the fact that the religious left is is now a a kind of very vital part of of our of our political landscape again in a way that it maybe wasn't in the 1980s and early 1990s. So let me present that to you as a, a kind of a, a kind of question. So your thesis is that the religious left had a fall. Someone like Jenkins says it's resurgent and it's rising. How, how do you address uh, a view like Jenkins's or someone else who wants to say, no, it's part of our fabric, it's there? How do you address that? Sure. Um, yeah, I actually reviewed Jenkins' book. He and I talk periodically. I think the easiest way to answer that is both he and I are contributing to the very subjects that we're studying. So obviously books contribute to the rise of something, the fall of something, his book is contributing to more of a rise of it. Uh, easy, I think the easiest sort of difference between the two of us is that people like Jenkins and others on the left tend to see electoral politics as being less productive for progressive activism. Obviously, conservatives do not agree with that, and they've never agreed with that. If you obviously look at how many conservative judges have been appointed over the last 40 or 50 years, you can obviously see that. I think there's a unwillingness of progressives, especially those on the religious left, to somewhat get down and dirty, to rely on the symbolic, to rely on the cultural. You know, if we buy a jersey that says something like Black Lives Matter, that we've basically done our political duty for the day, when in fact it takes much, much more, regardless of the boots on the ground, which I very much enjoyed Jack's book and the different dimensions of the religious left, this and that, but it tends to be somewhat truncated or it tends to lose steam when you actually get to the corridors of power, I think the religious left has assumed that power is simply cultural power in the way that I would define it and the way most conservatives would define it, those that I, who I study for this second book of mine, is that politics is the ability or, pow- or politics is, or power is the ability to actually shape worlds. It's actually to define who has access to what voting booths, to change how districts are drawn. So there's been really an unwillingness from the religious left to actually engage the real sort of mechanisms, in my opinion, of power in the United States. Cultural power is great, but just because you have a late night you know, comedy show and you can make your jokes and you can sort of be sarcastic and ironic and satirical doesn't mean you've actually done anything political. And I think the many on the left have sort of become comfortable with that. Like you said, the mantle wasn't really taken up. It was sort of broadcast on HBO and late night television. And that was really good enough. And you have books that say, Progressives win the culture wars, but they lose elections. And I think that really gets at the heart of the sort of difference between the different commentators today. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is L. Benjamin Rolski. We're discussing his recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond. So... 
your book is focusing on this figure, Norman Lear and Martin Marty to some extent, and this period, the 1970s, and uh, a kind of shift in the cultural landscape and how liberalism and a certain type of civic religion kind of came together to speak into the public to try and shift public consciousness towards a certain set of political ends. I'm now going to ask you to uh, sort of step away from that area of expertise and kind of do a little bit of a thought experiment with me. You you mentioned this two-hour special called I Love Liberty, and one of the voices in that two-hour special was Martin Sheen. Well, if we if we fast forward then to the early 2000s, we find Martin Sheen showing up again in a sort of another cultural watershed moment. And I'm thinking of Aaron Sorkin's television show, The West Wing, which sort of gave us a vision of behind the scenes politics in the White House with a fictional Democratic president who was played by Martin Sheen. And so I want to ask you about the contrast and the similarity between, if you will, Norman Lear's version of liberalism on the television screen and the kind of politics that Norman Lear was trying to put forward and someone like Aaron Sorkin, who in some ways was creating, if you will, another kind of touch point for the culture to look at and sort of see itself in a kind of liberal, let's all get along and find a way to function together kind of narrative. I think that's a beautiful uh, contrast. It's a great thought experiment. I'd say they are very much in the same tradition. Um, Aaron Sorkin not only did West Wing with Martin Sheen, but he went on to do The Newsroom with Jeff Daniels. That show is also very much in the same vein of, obviously, he sort of changed the transitions maybe from one sense of power or idea of power from the White House to The Newsroom, which really speaks to the sort of overabundance of information today, 24-hour news cycles, instantaneous news cycles, and the epic scene of that show where Jeff Daniels says something like, America is not the best nation on earth, disagreeing with the liberal commentator and the conservative commentator. So I think Lear and Sorkin are very much in the same tradition, very much in the same vein. Unfortunately, Sorkin, or no, Westing was on broadcast television. I, I'm thinking of the newsroom that necessarily wasn't. But I'm also thinking of something like Parks and Recreation. I've written a lot about that too. Um, so Amy Poehler and those responsible for Parks and Rec, local politics, we're all getting along. It's a diverse group of people. We have Ron Swanson, the libertarian kind of joke, and Leslie Nope is the sign of sort of heroic liberal defender of rights and and people's dignity. So I think it's still very much alive. And I think that that illusion is very, very helpful uh, in explaining the sort of salience and relevance of Lear's, what really is what's called relevance programming. You're subjecting programming to a larger aspirational vision of what you think society should look like. Okay, so I want to now try a philosophical idea on you. Satire is utopian. It's utopian because you get to have your opponent, your enemy, but you get to control what your enemy says, and you get to control the reaction of the audience to your enemy. In a similar fashion, something like Parks and Recreation or The West Wing is utopian because it's a it's a chance to sort of show the best of your side. Like the, these are the guys, these are the gals that are going to go to bat for the little guy. And even if they're in the White House, they're going to be in a bar one day and they're going to shoulder to shoulder with a common person. And they're going to take that idea back into the White House and they're going to plant it in the ear of the president. Like that, that's such a beautiful utopian vision. What is the good of telling ourselves stories like this? Do they actually help or are they simply distractions from what you said earlier was the the messy, power-based struggle of politics? 
Yeah, I would agree. So it is utopian. Um, is it somewhat escapist, perhaps at the same time? Um, I'd have to see when Parks and Rec really came on. And I think it just came off somewhat recently. But at the same time, it's very limited because, you know, someone like Ron Swanson is on that program. And for me, he's very much the kind of libertarian voice on that show. And he's oftentimes the butt of the joke, just like Archie Bunker was, just like Barry Goldwater was during I Love Liberty. Goldwater comes on and he basically says something as the butt of a joke. And that's kind of what I mean by the fall is that, and it's brilliant said, brilliantly said by you, is that all the characters are playing on the terrain of the writers and the producers of the show. And that's kind of what Lear is doing. He's predetermining the conditions of the discussion, which I also think is, is somewhat challenging and sort of led to the fall that you really don't have that freedom in the messiness of the world. You, don't really, you really don't have that option. What's the utility of this? I think part of it is to sort of sustain a vision of, say, local politics that keeps a certain community going, that keeps a certain community uh, happy and sort of content with their values, with their own political aspirations and commitments. Uh, long term, how does this actually play out? Very con in very contradictory sort of ways. Um, I think it cuts in both ways, like the best satire does. You're sort of repressing the very thing that you should be engaging which is something like Ron Swanson is saying that there's a great episode where he's talking about government bailouts and Leslie trying to use the federal government to create historic landmark sites or landmark status. When Ron says businesses, when they fail, they should fail and you should let them. Leslie's like, no, I don't think we should. So in many ways, it's sustaining to a certain vision of how the public should operate. Is there anyone comparable to Norman Lear now or if, let me ask that in a slightly different way, if we were to imagine someone with a comparable scope of power and influence to someone like Norman Lear in 2020, what would that look like? What would be the same as what Lear did in the 70s and in, in the early 80s? And what would be different? Not a lot of examples uh, come to mind other than those that I kind of think about every other day or every day, something like South Park. I think the people, obviously the two writer creators who did something like the Book of Mormon, um, I think their capacity to be satirical in a way that's consistent across the board, I think actually is the culmination of what Lear aspired to in the sense that they could make a funny episode about Scientology and Mormonism, but then they could also make an episode about people who drive Priuses and how much they get off on the fact that they're driving Priuses around. I also think in many ways that Peter Griffin from Family Guy is a direct descendant of Archie Bunker and Seth MacFarlane, the opening of that television show where Lois and Peter are at the piano. That's, an, that's a direct homage to the opening of On the Family. So as far as the reach, there really isn't anything today. You think of CBS, NBC. Uh, I don't think they're really interested in creating that type of programming, especially in light of the premium channels that exist today and the ability of people to pay for that type of programming. There are only three channels in the 70s. There really were, were no options. With the sort of fracturing of public life and of the television landscape, that content can go elsewhere, especially to those who can afford to pay for it. So the very landscape itself is really constraining the possibility of making someone like Lear possible even in this day. You've said that you've been in contact with Norman Lear and that he, even at 98, is, is sort of still functional and, and still active in some of these questions. And maybe you have an answer to this, maybe you don't. But as Norman Lear looks back over his life, does he consider himself a success in what he was trying to do in the civic realm? Or does he consider himself a failure? Or is there a third option that I'm not thinking of? Yeah, another 
Another wonderful question. I'll have to ask him next time. I would say a success or a failure. I think he would be happy with what he did and what he's done and with what he's doing. I think he would feel like he's left his mark on society writ large, on American culture. The fact that we watch live reenactments of his programming still on ABC means something about the imagination and what he did to shape it in some capacity. I think in a more political register, he would say that there's still a lot of work to do and that he maybe wasn't as, you know, quote unquote, maybe successful as he could have been. Uh, but that's why he's still working. That's why he's still fighting. That's why he's still reaching out to historians of, of different sorts, some of them very, very public and very, very good with social media and trying to get them to support various causes on behalf of people for the American way. So I think it's still a story that's being written. And luckily, he was surrounded by laughter for so long, as he says, that it's kept him alive and kept him going for all these years. And so I think he's still I think it's still a story very much being being written. I want to turn the focus back to you. So in the process of researching and writing this book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, have your own viewpoints changed? And if so, how have they changed? So in many ways, I started this project in a somewhat surprising way. I didn't really expect to stumble upon someone like him and his being such a window into our contemporary moment. I still would say similar things about what he was after and what he tried to do, especially in light of what the Democratic Party is trying to do in order to create a ticket that will be competitive with someone like Donald Trump and, and Mike Pence. But I still see some limitations as well to that, sort of a lack of perhaps imagination to invite more, say, progressive voices into the conversation that have maybe been left out in Democratic or Democratic Party conversations. But yeah, I'm still thinking that through as well. I mean, it's still something I think about every day that I'm writing about. I'm doing live commentary on the Republican National Convention and also at the Democratic National Convention. So I'm my thought is still a somewhat critical one. And that's kind of my job, or I see it my job is to be somewhat a prophetic kind of critic of different powers and principalities, I suppose, if you will, whether it's gay or in liberal clothing and conservative clothing. So, you know, I still am very much thinking that through, but it's a wonderful question and I'll, I'll have to get back to you on that. <laughs> well, Benjamin Rolski, I have to say your book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, blew my mind because I lived through the period that you were describing as a child and I think it washed over me, but I never stopped to think about the critical importance of it, particularly for religious questions. And you just, you, you made that so abundant and so clear in the writing of the book. It's a book that is technical, but it's very accessible, and it really kind of walks the reader through the the blockbuster importance of the influence of Norman Lear on all of these questions that still, as you've mentioned at several points in our conversation, continue to affect us today. I had such a good time reading the book. I am appreciative that you took the time to write it, but thank you especially for taking the time to talk to us about it today. Well, thank you very much for your kind words. Thank you for making time for us for this conversation today, and I can't wait to do it again. We've been speaking today with L. Benjamin Rolski. He's an adjunct professor in the History and Anthropology Department at Monmouth University and a part-time lecturer in the Religion Department at Rutgers University. We've been talking about his recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s Things Not and Seen Beyond. Is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. 
Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.